Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group. On this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts on the Fiscal Year 2021 National Defense Authorization Act. My colleague, Tommy Ross, a senior associate with the International Security Program here at CSIS. Roger Zakheim, the director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C., and Laura Seligman, a reporter covering the Department of Defense for Politico. Thanks so much for joining us today for another Defense 2020. We're going to focus today's conversation on the National Defense Authorization Act. If you're inside the Beltway or follow defense from around the country, around the world, the NDAA is probably familiar to you as the process we go through in DOD authorization every year. And quite remarkably, the Congress has passed defense policy bills, the, the certainly the House and and Senate authorizers have passed those policy bills for 60 years. This year is no exception to that. So one of the things we want to talk about today is, first and foremost, in this incredibly politicized environment, how is it that we have had 60 years, including this presidential election year, of bringing together Republicans and Democrats around authorizing defense? And let me start maybe with Tommy. Well, obviously, there's a lot of bipartisan support for the idea that we should be investing in a strong military. And I think that carries through from year to year. I also think that the chairman and ranking member of the House and Senate have have gotten to be really sophisticated about understanding what members' priorities are and making sure that they're addressing them enough so at least to get a majority of support from both parties for the bill every year. And you have to remember that the military is one of the great sort of parochial institutions in our in our country because there are bases in every state. There are defense manufacturing facilities or defense industrial base entities in every state in our country. And so for every member of Congress and every member of the Senate, there is something at stake in that bill every year. So I think that helps bring everybody on board and and feel like they have skin in the game and have something to gain by seeing it passed. So, Roger, I'm just wondering if you see it the same way and whether you think it's actually been as smooth in this election year as in prior years. I mean, it it seems to have gone remarkably easily so far. Yeah, I think what Tommy said is is generally true. We also have to take account for COVID. Um, you know, the Congress is just not operating the way it normally does. Uh, there's just a combination of kind of feeling like, let's just get something done, particularly for the military, for national security. We don't want to create a crisis over something else. We, we have a big enough crisis right now. And I actually think the process itself just didn't lend to protracted debates. My understanding of just almost procedurally how they handled amendments is that they didn't have time to allow for kind of big political showdowns. And 
we got to very inside the beltway, inside the con- Congress word of unblock amendments, where basically he says, okay, we're just going to give everybody what they want. We'll throw it in the bill. And then we're also going to let everybody have their amendment be voted up or down, but we'll do it over in one big unblock amendment. And that, I think, actually was a secret sauce, which allowed this thing to get through without, you know, big political standoffs. So, Laura... I'd love to get your perspective. You've been covering all things defense, but to include, of course, the negotiations on the Hill. Is there anything that really stood out? Is there? Is it just truly an unremarkable year, or, or are there some standout issues that we should be paying attention to as we move to these floor to the final resolution on the bill? Well, certainly one thing that helped was the the Budget Act in 2019 that set the top line numbers for 20 and 21 and marking the end of sequestration, of course. So so that's something that kind of smoothed the road. But but yes, I was I was certainly surprised that this has been so much smoother than especially I mean, last year, uh, you know, the Republicans were upset about a provision to block a sub launch nuclear missile and the bill passed the House without a single Republican vote. So the fact that this year has been less contentious is is pretty noteworthy. I mean, I I do think the pandemic is probably takes responsibility for some of that. You know, as as Roger said, there there wasn't as just as much time to have rancorous debate on the floor. So I think that was part of it. A lot of members were were forced to stay home. But I I do think we've seen just in the last couple of days, some sticking points finally emerge over the issue of renaming the Confederate bases. I mean, just to recap, we saw that both the House and the Senate seemed to be pretty much in agreement that they wanted to do that. And DOD had kind of left it up to Congress to legislate that. And then all of a sudden, the president says he has a conversation with Senator Inhofe, and Inhofe is coming out against renaming the bases. So I think that is that's something that kind of came out of the blue, and people were not expecting, and that could certainly derail the process this year. Yeah, I mean, to me, that's what's so interesting is you had kind of an unremarkable process on the Hill by strong bipartisan support. I mean, in the Senate, it was 86-14. In the House, it was 295-125. And yet, there are quite a few things, as there probably always are, stirring the pot this year. So let's start where, where Laura just did, which is on this issue of the Trump administration then coming out with its statement of administration policy, which is the formal response to these pieces of legislation. And uh, it threatens a veto. It threatens a veto on defense spending that's still standing. And the number one issue is on this idea of renaming bases that are named after Confederate officers. Roger, do you agree with the way Laura just described politics, if you will, between the Hill and the White House? Or is there something else going on there? I mean, I, I, it's obviously the biggest headline issue. It's the issue that matches or lines up with the big political debate across the country right now, the, the social unrest, Black Lives Matter. I mean, this is this is how it's manifest in the defense authorization bill through this issue. And, you know, that's always the case, Kath, right? You always have some sort of social issue that the country is wrestling with, which finds itself reflected in one, one form or another in the defense authorization bill. I actually don't think this is going to be an issue that's going to hold up the bill for procedural reasons I guess is, is, is number one, right? You have a, a Senate provision which says it'll take three years to address this issue. You have a House provision which says it will take one, it'll take a year to look at this. Regardless of the president and Senator Inhofe's conversation, 
it would be extraordinary for this provision to come out. So, you know, this is a conference report. At least that's the plan. And if that's the case, it's either going to be three, one, or something in the middle. And, and I'd be surprised if something else turned out. Plus, you know, Kath, as you know, and others, you know, the Department of Defense already has this approach here. Of course, the political appointees in the Department of Defense will say, hey, it's a legislative issue now, so don't ask us about it. But the reality is everybody except for, you know, kind of the words coming out of the White House expects this issue to be addressed similar to what's in the defense authorization bill out of the House version of the Senate. So is it fair to say, Roger, you don't expect your prediction is the president would not veto a bill that's some kind of compromise between the Senate and House versions of a study proposal on this issue? Yeah, I mean, as you know, it's it's every defense authorization bill. I haven't done the research, but I think we've had, you know, six decades approaching of of consecutive authorization bills. And I would expect there are probably that many uh, veto threats each year. So the veto threat is not a surprise. And, you know, with these type of overwhelming bipartisan support in each chamber where, you know, for the for the measures, I, I don't see a veto being exercised over this particular issue. Now, there could be something else that comes up. We've seen that before and they'll legitimize that veto with lots of other uh, reasons, but not this discrete issue. Roger, you hit the nail on the head with regard to broader issues being reflected in the defense authorization discussion. And so, Tommy, I want to turn to you about an issue that came not from the White House, but came from the progressive end of the Democratic spectrum of the party. And that was the push in both chambers, House and Senate, with amendments to cut the defense budget by 10%. Both of those amendments failed. So what is that story, Tommy, about both the fact that they were introduced, why they were introduced, and why you think they failed? So I think progressives are a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of recognizing that the current levels and the year-by-year increases in the defense budget are unsustainable when you're looking at the defense budget in the context of the broader federal budget, the climbing deficit, the significant needs on the domestic side, crumbling infrastructure, real challenges with the healthcare system and all of that. And just simply not, and another big piece of it, of course, is declining government revenue. And so there's not enough funding to go around to address these needs. I think progressives um, are signaling that the defense budget is not going to be sustainable at this level in the coming years. I think that it's a real challenge, though, just sort of procedurally to bring up this kind of amendment when you're looking at a defense bill and you're offering an across-the-board cut without any real ability to consider trade-offs. There wasn't, of course, in the Senate any sort of any debate on a budget resolution this year, which is normally the kind of forum where you would have that consideration of trade-offs. It's not surprising, I think, that the Senate amendment was a little bit different. It said that the 10% reduction in defense funding would go to supporting communities in need around the country. And it got a fair amount of support. It got about half the Democratic caucus, I think, in support of it. And so I think you see when you talk about an across the board cut in defense in a vacuum, no surprise, a lot of people are going to be really concerned about that. But if we can have a real serious discussion about trade-offs in the budget across accounts, that's where I think you can start to have a more more serious conversation about the future direction of the country. Laura, I'd love to get your thoughts on how you've seen that be received. 
both, again, the introduction of these two chamber amendments or an amendment in each chamber, and then the failure of them to pass. Is your perception that inside the Pentagon, there this has them optimistic, pessimistic? How do you think they're weighing what the implications of what they're seeing this year could be for the future? Well, I think it certainly goes back to the, the history of broad bipartisan support for the military as a apolitical organization. And I think that's always been pretty important to members of the military, to members of the Armed Services Committee, to keep that kind of apolitical background. This money goes to service members' health care, critical ship maintenance. You can't miss these bills sometimes. And and as we have seen over the years, the the impact of continuing resolutions is just so stark on the military in particular. So I think I think certainly it's it's not surprising to see bipartisan support for not cutting the military, but but I do think that people in the Pentagon are are looking with trepidation ahead to a potential Biden administration. And even if President Trump stays in office, there are certainly going to be cuts coming in the future. And I think that lawmakers and people in the Pentagon are very cognizant of that fact. And I think maybe they're thinking now is not the time to cut the military 10% when we've just reached the end of sequestration finally. And now we could be looking at additional cuts coming up. So that's kind of a broad overview. But but I think there is this thought that A, the military is trying as hard as it can be to be apolitical and B, you know, let's let's prepare for the future. They do need that money right now. Yeah, Roger, you know, this you know, the whole administration has been focused on from the beginning on this national defense strategy it put out, on implementation of that. You and I both served on a commission that was critical of the department's efforts to try to achieve those goals. And here we are, you know, three plus years in, almost four years into the administration, and we're looking at another potential downturn, certainly a flattening of defense. How far do you think these bills are getting us the budget that was submitted by the administration and then these bills. How are they doing in aligning the United States to this strategy that the administration has put forward? You know, I, th- I think overall, less than we wanted on the commission, certainly less than I wanted, but probably what we've come to expect. You know, in the end of the day, whether it's the Obama administration or the Trump administration, it's the president that really determines whether the Department of Defense is going to be cut. Full stop. The budget is really decided by the President of the United States. The Congress can trim on the margins. I mean, you look at the environment right now, the progressives are the strongest they've been in the Democratic caucus in a long time. The Republicans in the Congress have regained their voice on fiscal issues, kind of shocking as that is, given the amount that they've spent over the years of the Trump administration. Yet still, these amendments couldn't really garner support. And that simply is a reflection of it's really hard to move too dramatically away from the president's budget request. And so what needs to happen, Kath, and you've emphasized this, and I agree, is that if we're going to be at, at th- th- these levels, which essentially flat budgets or less, then they're going to have to be really, you know, some really tough choices. And those choices ultimately will be reflected in the investments we make in terms of platforms and geographies we need to focus on most, whether it's China uh, and Asia versus, you know, Europe and, and dealing with Russia or elsewhere around the world with a terrorist threat. Those are Choices that, in my own view, maintaining defense budgets would have, we could avoid at least making where we, where we have to really absorb a lot of risk. But I think with flat budgets or declining budgets, those priorities are going to have to be stated and kept to from a budget standpoint. 
both chambers to this point added a new initiative pot of funds in the House. They called it the Indo-Pacific Reassurance Initiative. In the Senate, they called it the Pacific Deterrence Initiative. These are modeled on similar efforts on Europe that were undertaken after the annexation of Crimea, invasion of eastern Ukraine by Russia. These new ones are focused clearly on China. Do you think, Roger, these are, you know, are these going to be helpful? Are they going to be useful? Yes and yes. I mean, at the end of the day, um, even though you have a defense strategy with the perfect words, you know, and they say exactly what you focus on, it takes a long time for the programs of record and the COCOM's posture uh, and presence to reflect that. And I think you basically need to look at these initiatives as a reflection that the Congress is saying, you are taking too long, you are too entrenched in your old way of doing business, and the people who are trying to affect this national defense strategy are having trouble we're here to help from the Congress. And here's some money and here's some emphasis. Go and fight the interagency or within the Department of Defense itself to make this strategy reality. Tommy, I, I think this really links, Roger's comments really link back to what you were saying at the very beginning about why you have broad bipartisan support, which is the fact that the defense industrial base and the defense economy and the military itself are representative of a broad swath of of America. Geographically, certainly that's true. And in terms of investment, that's true. But at the same time, this is part of the problem, right? Which is this, if we're going to transform for the future, there's going to have to be some things that lose. And what we saw in these bills, for example, were some areas where Congress is not willing to cut legacy forces. And that might be because they were, they were the wrong legacy forces that the administration picked, but it could also just be because of these vested interests. Do you think Congress is, this Congress or future Congress is up to the challenge of, you know, renegotiating that pact and thinking differently about interests of members as it relates to the defense budget? So I think, first of all, I would say that it's not always the case that Congress pr protects legacy systems strictly for parochial purposes. I think in some cases, and this applies to the A-10, and I think it also applies to some of the ISR aircraft that the bill would preserve, you know, there, there are legitimate disagreements about strategy, about whether the force that the military has or would have without these um, legacy systems is best suited to carrying out that strategy. So I think we, we should recognize that there are some points of disagreement that go beyond parochialism, but there's also parochialism. And I think there's, there's never gonna be a time when Congress is not parochial. That is their job, it's their constitutional responsibility to be parochial. I do think though that there is often a challenge with the Department of Defense in communicating to Congress why some steps that they're proposing are particularly important. And when the department can take the time to explain to Congress um, why some of these steps are important and what the trade-offs are, a lot of times they can build up support. So I think it is possible that they can address some of these debates and things like the A-10, you know, those are debates that have been around for, for quite a while now. I think it's possible that they can address them, but they're going to need to build a narrative that's compelling to members of Congress and helps them understand what's in the best interest of our, our national security. No, Laura, one area where it's notable that Congress has gone against, you know, some traditions is on overseas basing, where 
Traditionally, it has been the case that some in Congress have been most worried about the expense of U.S. forces overseas. That was certainly true throughout the post-Cold War era. And I'm sure that still exists, but perhaps because of President Trump's you know, frame of mind and, and resistance to NATO, to some of the other alliances that we have, for instance, in Asia. Congress seems to be actually pushing back on that issue in ways perhaps that fit what Tommy's saying. Maybe this is an area where DOD has succeeded in, you know, convincing members of Congress that there is value to be had on overseas basing. Now, not everyone's going to agree with that value statement, but the but the votes are what they are. And most recently in this bill, we saw it with the stationing issues over U.S. forces in Germany, where the president wanted to pull a third of forces out. Congress pushed back hard there and on Korea, requiring new levels of DOD certification if they try to do that. How do you see that whole debate over our allies, you know, the forces overseas and resistance, even intra-party in the Republican case, intra-party resistance to the president on these initiatives, reflecting where Congress sees its role right now on defense policy? Well, I certainly think that this is an issue that has been a Trump administration thing, right? This is pretty unique to the Trump administration. I think that people in the Pentagon and lawmakers on the Armed Services Committee who lean hawkish anyway, as we know, I think they're pretty afraid of the president's threats to reduce America's footprint around the world. You know, I, I don't necessarily that think that reflects every lawmaker in Congress, but I think definitely those involved in making defense policy. There's always been a focus on on our allies and our partners and and that is the way we see ourselves in the world. I think that it's it's interesting they're choosing this issue to push back on Trump on finally. I mean it it seems like a little bit too little too late. Uh, I mean they've caved to the president on on a number of issues over the years, you know, the border wall, weapon sales, sanctions on Turkey, we haven't seen those yet, the betrayal of the Kurds in Syria. So it's certainly good that they are are taking sort of a stand on this issue. And, and it also reflects an area where I would say the Department of, Department of Defense and Defense Secretary Mark Esper seems to be, if not taking a stand, then at least managing to massage policy so that perhaps the Trump administration does not end up actually pulling all those troops out to come home. They just sort of go elsewhere in Europe. So I think... I think maybe Mark Esper is working together with lawmakers as well to try to massage some kind of policy that's acceptable to our allies out of this situation, too. So I don't know that it necessarily reflects where Congress and lawmakers as a whole are on have have evolved on this issue. But I think it's a Trump administration thing. Yeah, I mean, it's that's one of those. There's gambling here. You know, the fact that the administration and members of the senior members of the military even go, of course, to Congress to work agendas. It's a very dangerous. It's always a dangerous game to to be working, if you will, at counter purpose to what the White House might have as priorities. But I would say it's it's fair to say in the Trump administration, it's a very dangerous game. Do you think you have a sense of what those big priorities have been for DOD that might look different than what the White House has as its priorities that they have been pushing? And are they just the things we've already talked about, the renaming of the bases, the forces overseas? I'm interested in your thoughts. Well, I think recently we've also seen 
the department stand up for Lieutenant Colonel Vindman as well. Um, you know, they, there's only so much they can do, I think, but you, you saw that they approved his promotion. The, the army looked into the, the White House tried to try to get the army to do an investigation over inappropriate allegations of inappropriate conduct. And the army did that invas- investigation, found nothing. So I, I think they have a, a pretty strong record on Alexander Vindman as well, which is good. It's just, I mean, their priorities are kind of hard to untangle sometimes because they allowed the Afghanistan policy to go through, you know, the Afghanistan withdrawal, their DOD is on board with that. Moving troops out of the way in Syria, DOD was on board with that. Killing General Soleimani, DOD was on board with that. But yet, you know, Confederate flags and renaming bases and these kind of more internal domestic issues, I guess, they're, they're taking a stand on. So I, I think that's kind of interesting. I certainly think that Secretary Esper is more comfortable in the internal Pentagon reform, Pentagon management uh, world. So I think maybe that's where he's trying to make his stand and, and cement his legacy, if you will. So I think what I'd like to do to bring us to a close with the few minutes we are remaining is really get to two issues. The first is the perennial, when will this bill pass? (laughs) When will we actually have our authorization this year? And will it be by October 1, the actual beginning of the fiscal year? So for listeners, this is the Authorization Act for fiscal year FY21. And the FY21 year begins October 1. Congress has had some trouble, let's just say, in the last decade getting those authorizations. I'm just taking bets right now. Who thinks this bill will get passed and signed into law by October 1? Any takers? You won't get me on that one, Kath, but uh, I think the other very important day is before the election, and, and I'll bet on again done before the election, which is just a month later. Interesting. And why do you think that? What what causes you to think that? Because members love talking about how they voted for a defense bill right before people vote, and the President of the United States probably wants to help his members. I see that, but I just, I sort of feel like neither side really has the incentive to pass the bill before the November election. And by that, I mean the White House and Congress. I mean, I just I just don't necessarily think that that either that either the White House or Congress has the incentive right now to pass a bill before the election, and especially when these hot button issues come up at the end, like the renaming the bases, I think. I, I don't know. I'm I'm certainly less optimistic than you, Roger. Sounds like we got a bet, Kath. How are we going to determine the uh, the outcome here? What are we going to do? Yeah, well, we can't. And none of us can see each other, but we could Venmo. So it sounds like you two ought to have a side bet set up. Tommy, are you getting in on the betting? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's interesting. What, what Laura said was really interesting to me because I think from a substantive standpoint, I don't see any major issues that are going to delay the House and Senate from coming to agreement on the differences in the provisions between their bills. I, I think that's fairly easy. They have August recess to work through it at the staff level. I think it's very feasible that they could have a bill ready to go to the floor and pass in, in September or before October 1st. I'm actually less optimistic than Roger that will avoid a veto on the on the basing issue because I think President Trump you know, nothing is sacred to President Trump in the same way that it has been to, in previous White Houses. There's not, I don't expect there will be the same compunction about vetoing a defense bill. And he's publicly, explicitly aligned himself with white supremacist groups. And that appears to be his, you know, one of his constituencies. So I, I think 
We can't rule out the fact that it'll be vetoed. And it's a question of whether he wants to pick that fight and whether uh, Mitch McConnell in the Senate will help him pick that fight or try to protect him from a veto or backing away from a veto threat right before the election. So I think all the prospects for the defense bill before October 1st are captured in that kind of politics, not in actually the substance of the defense bill. Well, I know we're all going to be watching this through the fall, and I'll be interested to check back with with each of you to find out how this played out in the end. I know we all hope for a smooth process of authorization for the sake of the Defense Department and the majorities in Congress, but I think we are just all going to have to wait and see. Let me thank Tommy Ross, Roger Zackheim, and Laura Seligman for joining me today. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.